I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the third Story and Star Wars lecture this week. Return of the Jedi. We are closing up the original trilogy of movies and looking back to try to determine what the story of Star Wars has been thus far. Before we get into that, I should apologize right up front for the quality of my voice this week. Unfortunately, my throat is uh, giving me just a little trouble, so I apologize if I sound a little raspier than normal. I'm sipping tea compulsively as I record this, so hopefully it won't be too bad. But we may move a little more swiftly and conclude a little earlier than we otherwise would. Don't worry, though, we'll have lots of time to talk about Return of the Jedi. More on that at the end of the lecture. So... Real talk, a confession right up front. Guys, I don't love Return of the Jedi. I didn't love Return of the Jedi when the original trilogy was all the Star Wars that we had. I loved it even less after the special edition was released. And I still don't love it now. That isn't to say that there isn't good in the story. There definitively is. I still sense the good in it. But for me, the structure, the pacing, the focus all work against the central dramatic arc. It's particularly tough coming off of Empire and watching the movies back to back like this because the tonal shift, the lack of cohesion, the lack of purpose is so marked. Return of the Jedi is the first time, I would argue, that the phenomenon of Star Wars eclipsed the story of Star Wars. Broadly, then, our story splits into three acts, much as the other two films did, though the structure here is even more fragmented than it was in Empire. After our brief prologue with Vader, our first act takes us through the events of Tatooine and Jabba's palace, all the way up to around the 38-39 minute mark. The second act takes us through to Luke going with Vader and the simultaneous arrival of the fleet at 1 hour 30, and the third act fills the last half hour, giving us our tripartite climax to the story. Let's begin, then, with the very opening of the movie, and with a phrase that has so thoroughly entered the popular consciousness that I'm not sure how much we think about it. I'm not sure how much I have thought about it until this seminar series began. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. It's a powerful introduction. And it's narratively identical to, and arguably semantically adjacent to, Once Upon a Time. All over the world, fairy tales begin traditionally with a version of that phrase. We say, once upon a time in English. In Swedish, you say, once there was. In Persian, you say, one day, one time, and so on and so forth. There are countless examples, and they all point us toward a distant antiquity. A time when the world was unknowable when there was still magic. It leads us away from our mundane understanding of the naturalistic world to a realm of myth and metaphor. And if your language doesn't idiomatically cast fairy tales in the deep, dark past, you almost always open with a description of distance. In Eastern Europe, for example, in Estonia and Slovakia into Russia itself, the form is usually some variation of beyond seven mountains, beyond seven forests, or beyond seven mountains and behind the seven seas. Star Wars combines these two ideas of temporal and spatial distance and gives us a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That is our first and our most important clue on how we are to take this story. By borrowing that powerful, that mythic language of fairy tales, 
were clearly pointed toward a fantasy story, a story of good and evil, of heroes and villains, a story with a strong moral center. It inclines us to think of Star Wars as something of a fable. It encourages us to think in terms of metaphor and of symbolism rather than thinking literally. Fairy tales at the deepest level are about the emotional truths of our existences, our intuitive understandings of ourselves, of each other, of the world around us. They weren't about comprehensive world building in the modern sense until Tolkien invented the modern fantasy novel. That, of course, does speak to the idea that Star Wars is a fantasy story rather than a science fiction story, as I discussed back in the first lecture, but it goes further than that. Inviting us to see Star Wars as a fairy tale makes it more relevant. If something is separated from us by a small distance, by a few years, then we generally tend to think that it doesn't apply so directly to us. But when we separate by a huge gulf of time or distance, we make the story mythic. And the mythic story applies to us all. We are inclined at that point to invest our belief, to distill actively from this story whatever wisdom there is to be found. That, I think, is the purpose of that opening line. In each of the films, it reminds us, this is mythic. This is epic. We should also look at the opening crawl of Jedi a little more carefully than we've looked at either of the other crawls, or, to jump the timeline just a little, the prequel crawls either. This crawl does something unique, does two things uniquely. It tries to create dramatic irony, and it directly foreshadows. The first paragraph tells us that Luke has returned to Tatooine to get Han from Jabba's palace. The second paragraph reads, Little does Luke know that the Galactic Empire has secretly begun construction on a new armored space station, even more powerful than the first dreaded Death Star. Firstly, in response to that, we must speculate that Luke does in fact know. At least, he doesn't seem to learn about the Death Star on screen because he's perfectly happy arranging to meet with the rebels after visiting Dagobah, and when he walks into the briefing, he joins Han's away team to Endor without hesitation. At no point on screen does Luke learn about the Death Star. Now, ordinarily, we would seek to establish this kind of dramatic irony, this differential between what the character knows and what the audience knows, in order to add tension, in order to add conflict. We're concerned at the character's lack of concern. But that's undercut somewhat because we begin this film on Tatooine, in an adventure that actually has nothing to do with the Emperor or the Death Star. By the time we get to those plot points, Luke already knows that the dramatic irony serves no purpose. Particularly, as I said, because it doesn't seem like Luke is unaware of the information in the first place. The second way in which the crawl deviates from the norm can be found in the last paragraph, which reads, When completed, this ultimate weapon will spell certain doom for the small band of rebels struggling to restore freedom to the galaxy. This foreshadowing, this looking ahead, is absolutely unique to the Jedi crawl. There's nothing in any of the other films that looks ahead to what might happen or speculates about the consequences. Rather, we focus on what is happening in the here and the now of the story. This is an extended reference or an extended homage to the serial crawls of the 40s and the 50s, as we discussed back in the first lecture. The foreshadowing in the Jedi crawl exists only to make the Rebel Alliance seem more secure than it is, which, again, doesn't matter because we aren't dealing with the rebels in the first act of the story. 
and it emphasizes the power of the Death Star, which we already know. It's difficult to speculate about the creative decisions that went into this opening crawl, but it certainly feels like insecure writing. It feels as though the movie is trying to reassure us right off the bat, as though it is assuming that it has somehow lost our attention or our enthusiasm. Don't worry, the opening crawl says. The stakes have never been higher. The Empire is still a big deal. And and we have a Death Star for you this time, just like that first movie that you liked so much. I would argue that this crawl doesn't establish the same feeling of immediacy, doesn't establish the same complexity of world and of character, doesn't bring us into the narrative in the way that the other crawls do, and I would argue, too, that it's less effective for that. That's a lot of time to spend on the first minute or so of this movie, I guess, but it is striking that Jedi already feels different. It already feels unlike the earlier films before we've even started our story. We start our story, when we get to it, with the cold open, the Vader prologue, in which we are introduced both to the new Death Star and to the Emperor directly, who is going to be a a force, a presence, a character in this film in a way that he wasn't even in Empire. Also, we establish that the Emperor is more powerful and perhaps far more evil even than Vader. From that standalone prologue, we transition to the droids on Tatooine, and our story really gets underway, and Jabba's palace occupies the first act of our structure here. The obvious comparison, I guess, is with the battle for Hoth, but whereas Hoth was about the rebellion, and therefore connected to the central antagonist, the core narrative conflict of both its individual movie and the series as a whole, Jabba's palace isn't. It has some interesting ideas, it has some tense moment-to-moment increases in conflict. I'm as big a fan of the Rancor fight as anyone, but it is an episodic adventure. It's disassociated from what surrounds it. And that's problematic, because when you are putting your focus into an episodic adventure, rather than continuing your ongoing story, you're squandering some of that potential conflict, some of that, that narrative pressure. It's also tangentially, the part of the series which I would argue suffers most from the special edition revisions. The Jedi Rocks song is obviously supposed to evoke the cantina from A New Hope, but the effect, the effect is different. Whereas the cantina was otherworldly and overwhelming, not least of all because we were so deeply in Luke's POV, because characters were shrouded, we caught glimpses, and there was a sense of of movement and of energy, this feels stagey. It should, I suppose, since it's literally on a stage. It tries to reconcile the kid-friendly tone of some parts of Jedi with the fact that Jabba keeps slave girls and feeds them to his rancor. It tries to have its cake and eat it too, without committing to a darker tone, as Empire did. It's like, for example, hypothetically speaking, introducing an adorable teddy bear, and then having it die. Not for nothing, but the plan to retrieve Han from Jabba's palace has also never worked for me. It feels as though we're leaning on a Mission Impossible plot, wherein our heroes all work together to pull off the perfect heist by exercising their individual strengths. But if that's the intent, then we have to wonder why Luke is the only one who is presented as roundly competent. And if it's supposed to be an illustration of how powerful Luke is now, not to mention morally grey, 
then what is Leia doing? Lando manages to sneak in unobserved, and the plan with the droids makes a certain amount of sense, but Leia impersonating the feared bounty hunter Boosh and delivering Chewbacca into Jabba's hands makes no sense. Jabba was just alerted by Luke's message that someone was very interested in Han, that a Jedi Knight was very interested in Han. Now, a random bounty hunter shows up with Han's closest compatriot. Was Leia supposed to rescue Han and then escape? Is that what we are led to believe by the structure of the story? What was supposed to happen, if that's the case, to Londo and to Chewbacca and to the droids? The only way that the events in Jabba's palace make coherent narrative sense is to look backward at them from the conclusion. The only way that they work is if things were always going to unfold exactly as they do. Leia frees Han and is then captured. Luke kills the Rancor and is then captured. They're dispatched to the sail barge where they can more easily escape. It is possible, perhaps, that this is deliberate, and we are supposed to take from this Luke's ability to foresee what will happen, but it doesn't work in its moment-to-moment -moment movement. It feels as though there are different forces inside this sequence pulling the fabric of the story apart, different impulses, different conflicts. The Jabba's palace sequence is strange and it's dissonant and it's unexpected in so many ways. It's the only truly episodic adventure in the original trilogy. It's the only plot thread that resolves itself without reference back to the core narrative conflict. Even the drama with Lando Calrissian on Bespin refers back to the Empire in a way that Jabba's palace never really does. So you have that creepy, oppressive pressure of Jabba's court, which is actively undercut by the Jedi Rocks musical number. You have the High Octane Harryhausen style battle against the Rancor, which is then weirdly capped with the crying Malakili, the Rancor Keeper. You have the set-piece battle on the sail barge in which we're invited to observe how cool everyone is, how capable Boba Fett is, only to dispose of him in an accident. Everything seems unfocused. It may seem like a crazy thing to say, because I'm certain, absolutely certain, I can tell from the correspondence I've already received, that most people prefer the Tatooine scenes to the Endor scenes in this movie. But I would argue that tightening up the opening, cutting it to 15, maybe 20 minutes, would create more space to build a solid structure in the back half of the film. It feels as though every time we start moving, we're stopped unexpectedly, and we switch our focus. We start with the droids, but their story stalls out, and we switch focus to Leia, whose story stalls out, so we switch focus to Luke, whose story stalls out, and then we have the fight scene on the sail barge, and we are a full half an hour into the film, a quarter of this movie's running time, before we even hit the Dune Sea and meet the Sarlacc. There's a lot to like about Jabba's palace, but it doesn't build in the way that we would expect it to. It doesn't refer back to that core narrative conflict in the way that, say, the Battle of Hoth did. Instead, it's an episodic adventure designed to conclude the Han in Carbonite plot thread, but it does so in the showiest, the flashiest, the most spectacular fashion, but with the least substance possible. From there, we'll jump ahead to the sequence on Dagobah, which, if anything, may actually be the inverse. I really enjoy the sequence on Dagobah. There is a lot of 
active non-verbal storytelling happening here, from Luke's confidence in the swamp to Yoda's obvious decline, Frank Oz once again manages to bring just an enormous pathos and wit and depth to Yoda. And it's to the film's credit that I think we can both empathize with him for the position he's in, and also want answers for the frustrated Luke. And it prompts us to confront some interesting questions about the nature of the Force and Luke's ultimate fate. In order for Yoda to fear that Luke may be someday turned to the dark side, he must see something within Luke that can be turned. What is that quality or qualities? What does it mean for the arc of our story? Why is Luke apparently uniquely vulnerable to the temptations of the dark side? It is true, as Yoda says, that Luke must confront Vader in order to become a full-fledged Jedi Knight, at least in the sense that Luke has to be tested and has to overcome the temptation of the dark side. But does Yoda believe it's possible that Luke will fall? If so, why does he urge him to confront Vader? After Yoda's death, the follow-up scene with Obi-Wan confirms that while Luke's feelings do him credit, as Obi-Wan says, they may yet be made to serve the Emperor. How does that prompt us to view the distinction between good and evil? Obi-Wan says that Luke's feelings, he's not exactly clear on which feelings, love, loyalty, responsibility, but he says that Luke's feelings do him credit. They are, in and of themselves, good. How, then, can they essentially be made to serve the Emperor? It seems that being a good Jedi is about passivity rather than activity. We'll look again at that at the end of today's lecture. From there, we move on to the briefing scene. Our heroes are in a very different phase, in a very different mode in this movie. They're proactive in this story, unlike both the previous installments. And we see Han's evolution from scoundrel to reluctant hero to full-fledged good guy leading the attack on the shield generator. That specifically, though, I think is a little too quick and a little too informed. Han, unlike the others, didn't have a year to grow and to change since the last movie, though one might argue, I suppose, that his recent experiences up to, you know, the imminent and realistic possibility of his death brought some of his life choices into stark relief and forced him to arc more swiftly than he ordinarily would. But even if that is the case, it's only more conspicuous that we pay no attention to it at all. By the time we hit the briefing scene, not only is he fully recovered from his hibernation sickness, but he's also just a good guy. The transition is complete, and that drains conflict from the Han and Leia story. It isn't helped, I suppose, that Harrison Ford is clearly phoning in his performance in this movie, but I don't blame him for that. The most complicated and likable character in the first two Star Wars films is now just a straight-up good guy, right when we need him to be his most conflicted. Imagine a version of the Attack on the Shield Generator where all hope seems lost when we arrive at the dark moment and Han takes Leia aside and tries to argue that they should leave, that they should save themselves, that they should go live out their lives on a planet on the Outer Rim because loving Leia is more important than winning the war. A conflicted Han would add internal tension to that storyline, which, without it, flounders. Without it, it's a simple battle. With it, it's a complicated character study. 
From there, we cut ahead to Endor. We have the speeder chase. We have Leia and Wicket. We have the capture of Han and Luke and Chewie and 3PO and R2. And ultimately, the Ewok worship of 3PO. It feels like it takes a long time to get where we're going. So the cinematography on Endor, the redwood forests of Northern California, is stunningly beautiful. And the sense of speed and action during the speeder chase is absolutely exhilarating. But all of this simply brings us to the Ewoks, which I guess I will call Ewoks, even though that word never appears in the span of Return of the Jedi. The Ewok conflict is arguably the heart of the back half of this film, and it can definitely be seen as a nature versus technology, magic versus science kind of conflict, though that is trivial. It's by no means such a straightforward metaphor. For one thing, while the movies to date have generally been in favor of faith and mysticism, the existence of Vader, the existence of the Emperor, makes magic a complicated idea in the Star Wars universe. Vader is cybernetic, and Obi-Wan heavily implies that his technological systems make him somewhat less than human. On the other hand, if you forgive the pun, the Falcon is the fastest ship in the galaxy, the Rebel fighters are more than a match for the Imperial fighters, and yes, even Luke's hand is robotic. We're clearly not drawing a simple, technology is bad, but nature is good contrast. Even the lightsaber, the iconic weapon of our hero, is technological, a point which is stressed even within this film when Vader observes that Luke has constructed a new weapon. I stress this because it's fairly common knowledge, I think, that the Ewoks were originally intended to be Wookiees. But because Chewbacca had already been seen to be not just comfortable with technology, but a fairly sophisticated pilot and engineer, that the conflict with the stormtroopers on Endor wouldn't have the nature versus technology flavor that Lucas wanted. That, at least, is one of the given reasons. I suspect there are others. And while, as I said, the contrast between nature and technology isn't at all consistent throughout Star Wars, we can't ignore the obvious intent of the story. The tribal society, the references to Native American culture, the technology level, the resourcefulness of the Ewoks during the Battle of Endor clearly push us toward viewing this as a nature versus technology conflict. Can we then distill a more sophisticated theme from this battle that still sits comfortably and companionably alongside the other themes that we've explored in this seminar series. I think we can, and it opens up some interesting points of speculation and missed opportunities in the earlier films of the series. It seems to me that the real conflict here is not between sticks and blasters or magic and technology, but between people who live harmoniously within their environment and those who don't. It isn't that the Ewoks use trees and ropes, it's that they understand how to draw out the potential strength contained in their world, and I'm using world in the broadest possible sense there, to include all their physical surroundings, their physiology, their understanding of their environment, their culture and community, and even, arguably, their metaphysics, their philosophy. The Imperial forces, by contrast, have no such respect for or understanding of their environment. Their bunker is a standard Imperial issue bunker. Their armor, with the few concessions that we see for the biker scouts, which don't seem to be that much better adapted to life on Endor, is standard issue. Their scout walkers are a poor fit for this environment, a scout walker who cannot keep its feet 
on rolling logs probably isn't a good scout walker to use on Andor. The Imperial forces are, throughout, ill at ease, and ultimately the landscape itself is turned against them. And that's a kind of warfare, a kind of military response, that had particularly grim significance for the United States in 1983, only eight years out from the Vietnam War. The stormtroopers lose because they do not understand and do not seek to understand their environment. Let's put a pin in that, because that's going to be relevant later. At the same time as the battle for Endor is taking place down on the surface and our heroes are valiantly trying to destroy the shield generator, Luke is on the Death Star in what we might think of, I suppose, as the Imperial Throne Room. There's no denying that the extended climax on the Death Star is dramatic. But I'm most fascinated watching it again by the way that this entire conflict collapses to two lines of dialogue, a simple exchange between Luke and the Emperor. Luke says, your overconfidence is your weakness. The Emperor replies, your faith in your friends is yours. And that's it. That's the entire conflict right there. And it's ironic that they are unaware in that moment that they are both talking about the same thing. Luke's right, though not entirely. It isn't the Emperor's faith in his plans that results in his destruction, but his simple faith in his apprentice, Vader. Likewise, it isn't Luke's faith in his friends that saves the day, but it's his faith in someone else whom he trusts, to whom he feels a loyalty and an obligation. His father. It's a lovely encapsulation of a conflict which isn't always all that we might hope, which is true, in a sense, of the end of the film as a whole. I'm not sure that the extended Force Lightning sequence really does what it sets out to do. I'm not sure that the ongoing duel between Luke and Vader does all that it sets out to do either. But at least in those two lines, we have that encapsulation of the fundamental, the elemental conflict between the Emperor and Luke. It comes down to faith, whether that's overconfidence or naivete. One of the problems with the climax is that it rests upon two unquantifiable, or <laughs> if not nominally unquantifiable, at least unquantified conflicts. In A New Hope, we know exactly what Luke has to do and we get to watch him try. In Empire, the conflict is manageable. We know the stakes, we can see the pieces moving, and we can watch the whole conflict unfold. In Jedi, until the shield generator is destroyed, all three of our main conflicts, that's Luke on the Death Star, the Han storyline on the surface, and what we might think of as the Londo storyline out in the fleet, all three of those conflicts are suspended. And we're not in a position to judge how each is going. We don't have enough information or the necessary perspective. So we need constant updates from the characters. We don't know if the stormtroopers are beating the Ewoks or vice versa. We don't know if the rebel fleet is holding its own against the Imperial fighters or how long they can last or what hope there is or what their strategy might be now that we know that it's a trap. We don't know what's really going on with Luke and Vader, so we have to rely on them stating outright how the other is feeling. From the perspective of storycraft, that's a problem. When you lock your conflict during the transition to the third act, when you lay out how and why and where and what the climax will be, this is the briefing scene from A New Hope, it is important that you communicate the stakes and the current position to your audience so that they can keep track through the climax, so that they can feel the way that you want them to feel. We don't get that in Jedi, at least not reliably, not comprehensively. Instead, we have this tripartite stasis. We have 
a lack of focus and of clarity. We stumble through these events while remaining somewhat unclear about how they relate to each other and what they mean in and of themselves. Oddly, also, we don't get a comprehensive dark moment in this movie. Han and the others plant the bomb in the shield generator bunker before Luke reveals Leia's presence to Vader, and we get the final duel. Luke then denies the Emperor, and we cut back to the bunker exploding and the rebel fleet attacking, complete with the victorious fanfare, before cutting back to Luke and the Force Lightning. This here is Luke's dark moment, absolutely. This is the climax of Vader's arc through the trilogy. But the rebels, elsewhere, have already turned the tide of battle. That denies us that dark moment, that moment when all seems lost, when victory seems impossible, but you must keep fighting, because the pendulum has already begun its upward swing. Again, it's a lack of focus and a lack of clarity. We should also address one of the more controversial edits made to this movie, one of the most controversial edits of all the special edition edits, the inclusion of young Anakin's force ghost at the end of the party on Endor. Superficially, it seems like a crude bit of bridging, a bit of duct tape or a band-aid between the two trilogies. Since Obi-Wan and Yoda both look the way they did when they died, but Anakin gets to be Hayden Christensen again. There is a possible interpretation, though, that allows for this, and it can be found in Obi-Wan's explanation back on Dagobah. In a sense, from, I guess, a certain point of view, Anakin died when he fell to the dark side. Moreover, Vader's body doesn't disappear when he dies the way that Obi-Wan's did or Yoda's did. Perhaps something was lost from Anakin, some essence or spirit or soul when he died. I'm not saying this to retro-engineer an explanation that minimizes the impact of the edit, so much as I'm trying to properly connect with the author's intent. And that, at least, seems to be consistent. We may feel that Obi-Wan was wrong to lie to Luke, to present the truth from that certain point of view, but it's possible that he was doing the right thing. It is possible that our complicated response to Obi-Wan, which is, of course, a product of the retcons that took place within the fabric of Empire and then Jedi, it's possible that our response to Obi-Wan isn't justified and certainly isn't intended. It's possible that Obi-Wan was telling the truth, or... I guess, possible if we're going to be adequately precise with our language, that the author intended for us to believe that Obi-Wan was telling the truth. If that's the case, then the ending may well be more emotionally satisfying rather than less. So what is the story of Jedi? What is the story of the Empire Jedi two-parter or of the entire original trilogy? We talked back in the first lecture about the hero's journey and the ways in which Lucas was inspired by Joseph Campbell's seminal work on comparative mythology. It may come as some surprise then to realize that Luke is not an archetypal mythic hero. The mythic hero, the classical hero, usually triumphs because of an innate superiority, a special power, an ability, a quality that sets him apart. He really is just better. Hercules is a demigod. Superman is an alien. Luke certainly has unique powers. Yes, the Force is strong with him, but it isn't his power with the Force that brings him victory. It's his humility, his self-awareness, his decision not to fight. That is the moment of triumph. When he doesn't fight the Emperor, he wins. In many ways, 
that runs counter to our understanding of the hero's journey. And it's unusual for the heroes of the Western canon to behave in that fashion. Indeed, when we examine Luke's arc through the story, his training, his constant improvement, the importance of dedication and of mindfulness, we see less of the traditionally Western sense of heroism than we do a sense of an Asian, particularly Japanese, sense of heroism. That is consistent with the Buddhist and quasi-Buddhist philosophy which we see run through Star Wars. There is no ends justify the means philosophy here, or being exempt from the rules because of your personal power. Here, power is an obligation, and intent carries heavy significance. That mindfulness, that dedication to training, to unlocking potential, that weight of service and consequence, as well as a vital reliance on one's friends and companions, that is not common to our sense of the classical hero. It's closer to the medieval, chivalric hero, but it isn't rooted in piety and goodness and obligation to an external force, but in awareness of oneself, which does, I think, fundamentally change its intent. We will talk more about this notion of heroism and the Western versus Eastern traditions in the lectures to come. In Jedi, we see what happens when the entire rebellion is goaded into impetuous action and the near disaster that follows. That is twice now that our hero or heroes have acted unwisely and fallen into a trap. First Luke on Bespin and Empire, now the entire rebel fleet around the forest moon of Endor. What are we to make of rash, impulsive action. Let's take one step further back even from that and look at the trilogy as a whole. As a first act, A New Hope is predominantly successful. It introduces our core cast, our themes, our conflict, as well as our primary villain, not antagonist in the strictest sense if we subscribe to the theory that A New Hope is the story of Luke's internally antagonistic desire to simultaneously fulfill his destiny and become a Jedi and also to play the impetuous hero. Empire is a beautiful second act in which we double down on all of those conflicts. We raise the stakes, we force our characters to change by the application of enormous and specific pressure. Jedi works as a third act in the sense that it brings all of our major characters to a new resting place, better than they were before, but it does so inelegantly, by cluttering up the plot with new details, a new second-tier antagonist who doesn't meaningfully connect with the main plot, Jabba I'm talking about there, and a new villain in the form of the Emperor. The problem with Jedi, from a narrative point of view, isn't that we split our heroes into three different storylines, or that we waste time with the teddy bear battle, though I know that many of you dislike that part. The problem with Jedi is that it loses sight of the story it's trying to tell and gets distracted by spectacle. To its credit, though it fumbles a little in the middle of the movie, it manages to get a decent grasp on the narrative again by the end, and the resolution pretty much from the moment Luke chooses not to fight the Emperor, or I guess more specifically from the moment that he removes Vader's mask, everything from there on out works well enough. So what does that tell us of the story of the original trilogy of Star Wars movies? It's not a simple question, because just when you think the story has established a rule or taken a given perspective on one of the big themes, it subverts it. It zigs when you think it will zag. But when we examine Luke's story and his journey from an impulsive young hothead to a Jedi Knight who triumphs by knowing when not to fight, 
And when we look at Han's story and his journey from disreputable scoundrel to a hero who has dedicated his life to a larger cause, when we look at the battle for Andor and the triumph of the Ewoks over the Imperial Expeditionary Force, when we look at the peace with which Obi-Wan meets his death and Yoda likewise, when we look at all of those stories and the way that they intersect and interact, it seems to me that the story of Star Wars is the story of harmony with oneself and one's environment, of peace over passion, of inaction over action. So many of our heroes achieve their goals by giving up, by embracing the simpler truth. That's not true for everyone, and is, I would argue, subverted in the case of Londo, who earns his heroic status by stepping the hell up. But broadly speaking, peace, harmony, wisdom are the paths to the light side of the Force. Go back through the movies and track, in particular, the conflict between harmony and disharmony. Obi-Wan lives harmoniously on Tatooine, as do Owen and Beru. Luke does not. Han does not. The residents of Mos Eisley do not. Yoda lives harmoniously on Dagobah. Luke struggles against the swamp in Empire, but exists alongside it in Jedi. You might even take this further. The rebels weren't living harmoniously on Hoth, which is why they were vulnerable to Imperial attack. They were trying to enforce their worldview on this planet that couldn't sustain it, that couldn't be compatible with it. Londo wasn't living harmoniously on Bespin because he was trying to keep hold of something unsustainable. Instead, he had to embrace the simpler truth and fight. Jabba lived in a constructed palace with a court of deadly intrigue and caprice, while the Ewoks knew their place and lived happily within it. We know that Star Wars isn't a simple conflict between good and evil, and it doesn't seem like the path to the light side is a simply moral one. Luke doesn't have a problem threatening Jabba with killing armed guards, with telling 3PO to lie to the Ewoks, but anger and hate are the path to destruction. Do as little as you can, Star Wars seems to tell us, and live as harmoniously as you're able, and you too will get your fireworks over the skies of Andor. We're not done, of course, with Star Wars, and we are going to continue to examine this theme, to interrogate this theme, as well as the others that we've been tracking through the prequel trilogy too. In many ways, we won't be able to make a definitive statement about what Star Wars is or is not until we're done. Next Tuesday, the 13th of October, we're going to live-tweet Jedi altogether using the hashtag StarWonks at 9pm Eastern Time, that's 9pm on Tuesday. Next Friday, there will be no new live lecture. We're going to take a week off from the lectures, because the following Tuesday, the 20th of October, instead of live-tweeting one of the movies, we are instead going to have a live video broadcast on YouTube. You'll be able to hang out there in the YouTube chat or on Twitter, and I'll take questions, we'll talk about some of the correspondence I've received, we'll talk about some of the thoughts we've had while watching the movies, and we'll dive a little deeper into the original trilogy. That, I expect, is going to be a particularly nerdy conversation, and I guarantee we will get our hands dirty with the hero's journey in the context of Star Wars. Then, on Friday, the 23rd of October, that's the following Friday, I'll release the lecture for The Phantom Menace, and we will pick up our regular schedule from there on out. There's a lot to talk about, a lot ahead of us. Guys, Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you so much for taking the time to leave so many wonderful reviews over on iTunes. It has really helped. And I know that a lot of people have found this lecture series because of your support and your recommendations. So I'm really appreciative of that. I cannot wait to see all the feedback that I get about this lecture and about the original trilogy. If you have questions, if you have comments, 
then get in touch. You can email me directly, podcast at storywonk.com, or you can stop by the forum at forum.storywonk.com, where there are always great discussions taking place. I look forward to hearing what you all have to say, particularly about that central theme of harmony. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I will see you on Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern, for the Return of the Jedi live tweet. Until then, may the Force be with you.